What's up? What's up? What's up? All right, technology, you gotta love it. Sometimes we hate it. Uh, this is one of those days that we don't quite hate it because, hey, I think you got a picture. Hopefully, you got some sound. Give me a thumbs up if you got some sound. Uh, we're having some internet problems in the building and uh, we haven't been able to sort it out with the time that we've had. So, uh, hey, happy Sunday to you. If I've not met you yet, my name is Jeff. I'm the pastor here at the Transit. We're glad that you are joining in with us on Sunday. Um, given our, uh, our internet problems this morning, we are recording this uh, with you know, a little bit more fancy uh, equipment that we have in our sound booth. And so uh, don't stop watching. Uh, however, if you want to come back uh, and watch this a little bit more cleaner and clearer uh, this afternoon, then we would welcome you to do that. We are a new bumper, so obviously we've got a new sermon series today. Uh, we're going to be in the New Testament book of First Peter, almost towards the end of your Bible, if you're uh, new to your Bible. And so go ahead and turn there. We are, this is basically an introduction to uh, the letter itself. Uh, but all along with that, uh, we're going to look at the first two verses so 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, I'm going to have you read uh, out loud, wherever you are, with me as we uh, dive into the scripture this morning. Here's what the word of the Lord says. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for the obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Amen. Uh, the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pause to say thank you. Thank you for a new day. Thank you for waking us up. Thank you for the sun that, that, that faithfully rises and, uh, and, and shines upon us, that heats up our world and, uh, and allows us to exist. Uh, we don't, sometimes we take those for granted. Today we want to be reminded of those of those things. Uh, as we continue to be a scattered church, Lord, you've used technology, albeit with difficulty, to bring us together. And so we thank you for that. And this morning, as we uh, embark upon the journey of a new sermon series with uh, um, different focuses for us in our lives, we pray that you give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts to receive what you have for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. So if you were paying attention to uh, the way that the Apostle Peter starts this, uh, his letter, commentators say this is one of the most rich openings of any letter almost in the in, in entirety of our Bible. And one of the reasons why is this beautiful Trinitarian greeting that Peter gives us. He's acknowledging the work of, of God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit all working uh, concertly, is that a word, uh, together in our sanctification and our growth as believers. But here's what encourages me, and not that the, the Peter's thrust about the, the Trinitarian God working to bring us to salvation. I, I'm intrigued, I, I'm impressed uh, by just the first word in this document. And it's actually, it's not a word, it's a name. It's Peter. If you've read a little bit of the New Testament, if you've read the Gospels, if you've read some of the epistles in the, in the New Testament, I mean, you know Peter. Peter, one of the first disciples, along with his brother, Andrew. Uh, this is Peter, the, the fisherman. Uh, he was a professional fisherman. Remember that incident where Peter uh, is trying to fish, catching nothing. Jesus comes up to him, uh, asks to get in his boat, and Peter is frustrated about fishing. Jesus says, toss your net over to the other side. And Peter's like, hey, I know what I'm doing. But he, you know, out of 
uh, out of sympathy for Jesus, he actually does it, and Peter catches a, a whole load of fish. This is Peter, who was kind of impulsive. Peter spoke before he thought, and it was too late to catch, catch his words. This is Peter, who was a hypocrite. Galatians 2, Paul is uh, challenging, chastising Peter, because Peter... Peter's hanging out, goes to Galatia, he's hanging out with the Gentiles, eating their food, drinking, drinking their drink. Peter's like chowing down on some bacon, and then some Judaizers come, the Jews come, and Peter like backtracks, like, oh, I forgot I was a Jew. This is Peter first among the disciples. Every time we see, not every time, but almost uh, most of the time when we see the disciples listed, Peter's name is listed first, particularly amongst the three closest to Jesus, Peter, James, and John. He is the first among the disciples. This is the guy that first had the revelation about who Jesus was. We read this about Peter. Uh, Jesus asked the question, who do people say that I am? And Peter says these words, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And on the heels of that, Jesus calls Peter the rock, Matthew 16, Jesus uses the, the, the word church for the first time, and he uh, insinuates that, that in some way Peter would be uh, central, would be focal in bringing that church about. On that rock, the church will stand. But this is also the guy who committed one of the heinous sins in the Bible. This is the Peter who denied Jesus three times, three times. And of course, that was when Jesus was going under trial and he would eventually uh, go to the cross and die in our place for our sin. John 21 tells us that Jesus comes back and he act, uh, actually uh, restores Peter. Jesus restores Peter to himself. And uh, after Jesus' ascension on the day of Pentecost, Peter's the one that stands up and preaches this beautiful sermon. And uh, the, the people at Pentecost respond and over 3,000 people are saved. I'm encouraged by that, that a guy that can miss it so badly can be restored and confirmed and strengthened and established by Jesus. And people will use those same words about himself and about the people that he's writing this, this letter to. So the irony shouldn't be lost that the guy who is writing this letter to this dispersed church that's struggling and suffering with various trials, they're, I mean, they're tempted to walk away from Jesus because of uh, the, the, the trials that they're under, that this same guy when things got hard, this guy that's writing this book to them is a guy that did that very same thing. This Peter, when under trial, walked away from Jesus, and yet he's the one in that same situation that's writing to a people, encouraging them, hey, don't do what I did. There's better for you. It is ironic, but it's also kinda, it also kind of makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, who better to encourage them to encourage people that once you fail, it's not the end, that there is a restoration that God has for us. And the recurring theme that we'll hear Peter exhorting uh, these dispersed churches to is this idea of suffering. Now, suffering, uh, we'll see that throughout the letter, the five chapters of this letter. I want to show us a, a few spots where that is prevalent, prominent, uh, even as we begin. So turn, turn all the way in your Bibles to chapter 5, verse 9. I'm going to read a couple verses here to see what Peter says about, about suffering. At the end of the letter, he's actually exhorting the people to watch out for Satan, that Satan comes to devour. And he says in verse 9, resist him, resist the devil, firming your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So Peter is writing to a, a group of people who are, who, they're not necessarily experiencing overt persecution, 
this isn't the state government uh, purposefully organized and oppressing uh, the, the, the church as if they're against the, the whole church. But these are Christians who are experiencing in some way rejection. They're being ostracized. They're being denied certain privileges. They've been put out of the community that really is their own community to be a part of. They have been excluded. And so what they're experiencing is suffering in the form of standing up for Jesus. And in some ways, the day that we live in is it's not too different. Now, in the 21st century, we're not going to be burned at the stake for, for following Jesus. We're not going to be burned at the stake for, for putting our faith in him. And Peter isn't referencing that kind of suffering here in this letter. In the culture of our day, when we stand up for Jesus, we can expect a little bit of pushback. That's what I mean. Those are the kind of sufferings and trials that we might experience in our life. And so in the totality of this book, this isn't a, a, a doomsday uh, look at life. Peter isn't going to say, all right, folks, go stock up on water and, and, and food, hunker down in your houses, in your basements. Uh, the, the end of the world is, is near. Peter isn't saying that kind of, he isn't giving us that kind of message. Yet Peter will emphasize, we live in a foreign land. Remember that story, that, uh, that, that song that we learned in elementary school? This land is your land, this land is my. Peter's like, uh, uh, don't sing that song because uh, if you're a Christian, you are legally citizens of, of Earth, of the states that you live in, and the United States of America in, in our case. But if you're a Christian, ultimately, you are a citizen of heaven. You belong to uh, another kingdom, the kingdom of God where Jesus is king. And here's the thing that Peter will convey to us. Undoubtedly, at some point where there's a conflict of, there'll be a conflict of uh, and a test of our allegiance. If we're following Jesus at some point, there's going to be a conflict with whether we follow Jesus or do what the culture and the world tells us to do. And of course, Peter's going to exhort us to, to follow Jesus, to be an example of, of, of him. And that's going to be Peter's take on suffering and, and life getting hard. We tend to take the we tend to tend to talk about suffering so casually, don't we? We we suffer when it's hot outside. We we suffer when the temperature in our house isn't cool enough. We we suffer when we don't get the promotion at work that we think we deserved and we wanted. Peter's going to say in verse nine. Yes, he does say in verse nine. There are right now people dying dying for their faith all around the world, and so he's going to say to us several times: Be sober-minded about how you think about your own situation. And then look what he says in verse 10. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore and confirm and strengthen and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. So Peter encourages us to have an eternal perspective as we think about what we're experiencing in a life that we are living. And I think Peter experiences, experiences this Firsthand, he, he knew what it was like uh, to fail because he had denied Jesus in the midst of a very simple trial, right? But then what did Jesus do? Jesus restored him. Jesus confirmed him. Jesus strengthened him. And ultimately, Jesus, uh, I mean, elevated Peter to the place where he was useful for Jesus and his kingdom, I mean, throughout his whole life. And so Peter's story is a good news story like for, for us, because life does get hard for all of us. And we're going to fail. And we need a good example like Peter, a colossal failure through whom God encourages the church. 
And Peter doesn't just want us to survive through life. He wants us, listen to these words, he wants us to stand firm. That's the word that he'll use throughout his, his letter, that when we fail, he wants us to know that we can actually be restored. Failing isn't the worst thing that can happen to us. And so over the next 20 weeks, yeah, we're going to be in this book for 20 weeks. No more Daniel, 30, 40 verses, like just cramming it in. We're going to look at a few verses at a time every week. 20 weeks is going to take us through the whole summer and into part of, of the fall. We're going to talk about what it means for us to be that kind of people, the kind of people who, who live in a broken world, but who are citizens of another world, who, who get to say yes to following Jesus, albeit we all do that imperfectly. And Peter's going to say to us all along what he says, uh, what he says to these dispersed uh, Christians all over Asia Minor in verse 9 and 10. That, that God wants us to stand firm, that he wants us to, to believe uh, in, in his word, that, he, that even if we fail him, he's going to restore us and confirm us and strengthen us and establish us so that we're of use to him and to his kingdom. But here's the question that I want us to think about uh, pretty much every week as we are walking through this book of the Bible, and it's this. How can we be the church everywhere? How can we transit church? individually, but more importantly, corporately. How can we be the church everywhere? Not just everywhere, but, but all the time. How can we be God's people everywhere he sends us for his purposes so that the world can be blessed through us and we won't compromise in the process? Here's what, here's what Peter has a perspective of that I think is, is right. He's looking all the way back to the promise of Abraham. Where did, where did God promise to Abraham? He promised him that, 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 through, that through Abraham, the nations would be blessed. So in a sense, God blessed Abraham so he would be a blessing to everything that he touched. And God wants that same thing for us. He wants us to be blessed so that we would be a blessing. But to do that, we got to stand firm, firm in our faith. We got to be faithful to his word. We got to love Jesus. We, that, that, that even though we might be rejected, we fail, that we'll know we're forgiven and that God wants to restore us and establish us for his own use. And so as we look at this book, particularly look at these first two verses, I think there's two things that stand out to me. Uh, uh, and here's where Peter starts. He starts with this idea of uh, remembering who we are and also remembering what God has done. So how, do, how can we be the church everywhere all the time? Peter gives us two things as he starts out. He says, remember who you are and then remember what God has done. And so in these first two verses, Peter is really being a good pastor because he realizes that people, like, like church people, like me and you, we forget. Like, do y'all realize why, we, why Jesus instituted the sacrament of communion and says, do this often as you would in remembrance of me? Because we don't remember. We don't remember what God has done for us. We only remember who we are. And so this is one of those instances that Peter wants us, encourages us, he's exhorting us, remember who you are. We forget the, who we are and what God has done. And when we forget who we are and what God has done, we easily give in to find our identity and our significance and our worth in something, in someone, in anything other than who God has called us to be. And so Peter tells us, encourages us, remember who you are. Verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. The, the, there's a lot there. Um, I, I just want to actually pick apart every word. I don't have time for that. 
Here's the, here's the big phrase that sticks out to me. It's this idea of elect exiles in the dispersion. That's, that's who Peter is describing his reading audience as in relation to the world. Peter is using words that connect his readers to, to the, the ancient people of God, the Jewish people, right? The Jews were elect exiles dispersed all around the world. The word elect means chosen. I don't know what you think about when you think about like how, how you came to faith. A lot of times we think, like, I'm, I wake up one morning and ah, it's just an epiphany. Like, I'm going to serve God today. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read the Bible. I'm going to be a person of faith. I'm going to just do all those things that people of faith do. Guess what? The Bible doesn't say that's, how you, that's, that's, that's not how it works. Actually, God chooses you before you choose him. In fact, God chooses you because... If he doesn't act on us, we'll never act on him. God is the initiator. And so the, the elect are those that God has chosen. Exile means that you have lived in a place and you've been kicked out and forced to live somewhere else. So much so that Peter says these Christians are dispersed. They're dispersed. The diaspora, that's a word that Bible scholars use to, to describe the scattered condition of the Jewish people all over the world, even, even right now. And so the diaspora, the dispersion began with the invasion of the Babylon Empire. Think Daniel, that, 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 that book that we went through for 12 weeks. And it continues into Peter's day under the Romans. This, of course, is the first, the first century. What's interesting about this phrase, elect exiles of the dispersion, is that Peter is writing, he, he's not writing to a group of Jews, which would be appropriate to use that, those words with. He's writing to a group of Gentile churches, not Jewish people. And we know that by the list of, of cities to which they, they, they belong, Pontus and Galatia and, and Cappadocia and Asia and, and Bithynia. But that's not the only uh, way that we can tell what's going on and, and who he's writing to. We can tell by what Peter says in, in some of the, the, the verses that follow later. And we're going to sort of do a Bible survey this morning. So uh, get your Bibles ready. Get your fingers like agile. So look at 1 Peter uh, 1.18. Here's what he says. He says, we have, they have been ransomed from feudal ways of their forefathers. Feudal ways is, this, is a, a word choice that suggests that these people that he's writing to, that they delve in paganism, like worshiping foreign gods, idolatry, and all that other stuff. Skip down to 1 Peter 2.10. Here's what Peter says. He says, beautiful words, once you were not a people. Now you, now you are a people. He also, he follows that with, uh, once you were, you had not received mercy, and now you have received mercy. And so his, his target audience, by his word choice, I mean, they were outsiders. And now by the grace of God and the gospel, they have become a part of the people of God. They were Gentile pagans, and Peter describes them as, really with the titles and the terms that he would use solely for Jewish people. And he's doing that to these people, really for two reasons. First, he wanted to assure them, you really are the people of God. Like, you are the new Israel. Like, you're as much in the in, in, the in group with God's people as they were thousands of years ago. The second thing is he, he's using this language, elect exiles of dispersion, to highlight their minority status, their minorities, their outsider status in the eyes of the world. Back up to chapter 1, verse 17. Note the vocabulary he uses in this verse. He says that they are to conduct themselves with fear throughout the time of their exile. In other words, while you live on earth, he says, if you're a Christian, your entire existence is an exilic existence. And then chapter 2, verse 11, P 
Peter, again, conveys this again where he calls Christians sojourners and exiles. A sojourner, what's a sojourner? It's a resident alien. A resident alien is someone who is legally in a different land. He's not there illegally, but, but he, he definitely isn't a, a native part of, of that land. He's a resident alien, a, a pilgrim just passing through. Now, historically, Peter wrote this letter in the, the early 60s A.D., during the reign of the, uh, the Roman Emperor Nero. Nero, known for violent persecutions and cruelty, especially to Christians. Persecution and, and martyrdom had not yet broken out in the time that Peter is writing this letter to the dispersed churches in the regions where they were, but it's coming. And so instead of uh, these people facing uh, the, the martyrdom that would happen under the reign of Nero, here's what they're facing. They're facing social exclusion. They're being marginalized, not just because of who they are, but more importantly because of, because of their faith. Their faith was being tested by various kinds of trials that caused them grief. And we see that in another series of verses. Again, we're going to do another Bible survey, so Get your fingers ready. First Peter 1, verses 6 and 7. Here's what Peter says. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Again, the, the highlight there is they are being, they're, they're grieved by the trials that they're experiencing, and it's used to test. God said, he, he's saying, God is using this to test your faith. Skip forward to chapter 2, verse 12. Peter suggests that these, these Christian believers scattered throughout the, the dispersion are being slandered because of their faith. Verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when, you, when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on a day of, of visitation. Chapter 2, verse 20, Peter offers counsel to, to servants who suffer for doing good. Here's what he says, verse 20. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Skip forward to verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 9. This is what Peter tells the church. He says, don't repay evil for evil, bless instead. What's the insinuation there? The insinuation is there is evil in the world. That evil is targeted at you. When you, when you are the recipient of that evil, don't, don't, do, don't do tit for tat. Don't do evil against evil. Do the hard thing. Do the God-centered thing and bless. 1 Peter 4.12 he says there's a fiery trial coming, and then he tells him, verse 12, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. As though something strange were happening to you. And then lastly, uh, we, we, we see some of the purpose of why Peter is writing in verse 16 of chapter 4. He, he's writing to help them get ready for suffering as Christians. He says this in the, in the verse, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. So this is the, the uh, encompassing picture that Peter is, is, uh, is giving us. These people aren't in power. They don't occupy positions of cultural influence and, and significance. They've been pushed to the fringes of, of their lives, really, of the society that they live in. Uh, they're marginalized as, as weirdos for Jesus' sake, elect exiles of the dispersion, is how Peter says it. But, but, but here, in all that, here's my point. This isn't too far off from where 
we live today. Now, some of you would debate, debate me about that. You say, well, Jeff, I live pretty, pretty easy, pretty cool. I'm happy. I'm happy with culture. I'm happy with the things I get to do in the culture. I'm not being oppressed. I'm not being persecuted. There's nobody coming against me because I believe in Jesus. And that's fine and well and good if that's you. But can I, can I be a little prophetic? For, for, the, for, the, for most people in our society to become a Christian, both now and into the future, uh, is and will not be seen in a favorable light. Thus, thus says Jeff. I'm not saying that I'm prophetic in the Lord. I'm just telling you, that here's, here's what we learn in the, in the book of Daniel. The world is not spinning up to some utopia where all is good from the state all the way down to the people and how we interact with each other. That's not how the world is going. The world is spinning down into more chaos where the leaders that lead us and the people in our interaction with each other, it gets worse until the end. And then Jesus is going to come in and, and bring us into an eternal kingdom that will not fail. That's, that's how the, the, the course of history is going. And so when I say that, um, that in the future, being a Christian won't be seen in a positive light. I'm not giving you a doomsday perspective of, of what it means to, to be people of faith. I'm just telling you, I'm telling you what Peter is saying. We should expect to be tried for our faith. It's already a social and culturally costly thing to stand apart from the, the ethics and politics and the philosophy of the time that we live in and just stand up and say, hey, I'm a Christian. There's some, I mean, you can get on the metro and, and, and say some things uh, faithward and have people look at you like you're a unicorn, right? I mean, that, that can happen in our own lives. To do so would be selectively to put yourself in cultural exile. And so here's what Peter says. Here's what Peter says to, this, to, to these people in the, in the first century, but he's saying that same thing to us. If you're a Christian today, uh, like newsflash, you are an outsider. Probably the, the strongest language that I can use in our day, in the cultural moment that we're in right now, is to think of this idea as like, like you are a minority. Like some of you listening to the broadcast, you have no idea of what it means to, 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 to be a minority in the world that you have lived so far. And so Peter is painting that picture. Uh, you're a minority in what you believe in, the faith that you are professing, and how you live it out. And so his, 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 his exhortation to us is, get used to it. And so Peter's purpose in this letter is to give us, he's, he's trying to help us figure out, I mean, what do we do with that? How can we be the church everywhere all the time? How do we live faithfully as outsiders rather than people with access to, to cultural power? How do we live as exiles of the dispersion, resident aliens, minorities who are just passing through? That's what Peter's trying to, to help us do. And I don't know about you. I, I can say this about myself, but I, I think it's true about you as well. Um, we need help with this, don't we? We need help in this, in this regard. And I think what's interesting about Peter is he doesn't tell his readers what I might like to tell them. Like, like I would want to tell them some things to do in, in regards to the, the, the circumstances they're in. Peter doesn't do that. He doesn't tell them to abandon the culture. He, he, that's what we might do when life gets hard. We just back up. We go high. We create our separate institutions, create our own Christian subculture. In fact, ha haven't we done that? We created our own schools, both private and Christian. Uh, some of us homeschool. Uh, I mean, I know people that they have bought a house in a neighborhood and they invited all their friends to live beside them and across from them so they could just like have this like nice little Christian bubble. 
I'm not saying that's exactly wrong. I mean, there's, there's a measure of freedom. You can do whatever you want. I just don't think that's how Peter is encouraging us to live as Christians in the world that we live in. That we would only engage at, you know, when we absolutely have to, that we would leave the world to its mess and weather the storm. Peter doesn't tell them to do that. But, but here's the other side of that. Neither does he tell these, these Gentile Christians to accommodate the culture. He's not telling them to blend in and make, it, make yourself invisible. He's not saying uh, you know, th- uh, that we would have to say stuff like, like don't be so strict and, and don't be too conscientious about the particulars. Just go with the flow. Blend in. What's the big deal? Those are the two extremes that we lend to, and he's telling us, hey, there's a fine line down in the middle that Jesus wants us to strive. In fact, instead, Peter is telling us in this book, be the church everywhere all the time. Live faithfully, be generous, live sacrificial lives of service and mission, and, and, and get this, and if need be, suffer for Jesus. Like, be willing to speak up and live your life uh, demonstrably so that people would have no question at all that you live for Jesus, that you serve another king. He's encouraging us to do that. Now they're backing off, but not even compromising. Living on life, living a life on mission together for the blessing and benefit of the lost and for the great glory of God. It's the promise of Abraham to, 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 to receive the blessing of God so that you will blessing, be a blessing to those that are around you. So Peter says, remember who you are. Remember who you are. And that's the thing that Peter's going to come back to again and again. But having introduced it here, here's what he does. He comes behind it with a reminder of the grace to help us do just that, to live this way. Here's what the second thing that Peter says in our text. He says, remember what God has done. Verse 2, here's what Peter says. He says, we are elect exiles of the dispersion according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. All right, every verse, I mean, we could take the whole rest of the year and just pick apart theologically what all those words mean. All right, I'm going to try and do that in like 10 minutes. Uh, First thing to notice, the Trinitarian language that Peter is using here. Peter mentions each person of the Godhead and he's implying their unique mission in our sanctification, that the Father elects who to save. He sends the Son in obedience to bleed and die in our place for our sin, for his chosen people. Both the Father and the Son send the Spirit to call people like you and me to faith. Jesus draws us and gives us new life and changes us into the likeness of himself. And Peter shows us in this letter that it's the Godhead, like all three persons, that move towards us in the gospel. And they serve us, serve as the impetus for us being on mission to move into his world. So it deserves for us to break down these three phrases real quick. The first was this. Uh, He says, we are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. All right, that word foreknowledge, just like exile, just uh, not exile, just like uh, elect, just like predestination. Those are those are fighting fighting words in, in some Christian camps, right? Like some people love them, some people hate them. Those words divide us in in Christianity, and Peter's not trying to divide us. I think he's just articulating who he knows God to be and what God does for us, right? And so he uses the word foreknowledge. Foreknowledge uh, is this idea that uh, is to to know something ahead of time. Let me, let me, uh, we all have these uh, preconceived notions about what foreknowledge is from a biblical perspective. Let me tell you what it's not before I tell you what it is. And so foreknowledge does not mean knowledge about human decisions and actions and events in advance. That's not how Paul, that's not how Peter's using it right here. 
Foreknowledge does not refer to God's looking down the long, dark corridors of history to see beforehand what you would freely do. And because you do the right thing, God's going to like, I'm favorable to you because you did the right thing. That's not what is happening here. To be sure, though, God absolutely does possess that kind of knowledge. God is omniscient. If he were not, he would not be God. But that's not what Peter is referring to here. I think this is the key. When, when, when Peter talks about and um, when Peter expresses that, that, that the foreknowledge of God, he's, he's, he's talking to us that God foreknows people, not your actions. God foreknows who you are, not your choices and your actions. When the Bible talks about God knowing his people, it means more than merely knowing about them. It means knowing them in an intimate, personal relationship of love. The late uh, great uh, theologian J.I. Packer says it like this. He says, to be foreknown is to be foreloved. And so if you're a Christian, Transit Church, all of y'all watching, if you're a Christian, I mean, why are you a Christian? Like, you, you might want to, like, the, the, the immediate question gives us, like, well, I'm going to go search back and, like, check out my, the history of, of how I became a Christian, the steps, maybe I was born into a Christian family, or I read a track, or you know, I went to church, and, like, everything just came alive to me. Not, like, I'm not discounting any of that. But, but here's why you're a Christian. It, it's simple. God loved you. God loved you with an everlasting love. That's what Jeremiah 31.3 says. Before there was a you to love, he chose you. Aren't those good words? God didn't just anticipate that you would choose him, and so he elects, elects and aligns his purposes with your free decision. That's not how it works. Actually, at least this is, this is the case for me, he saw that I would never choose him if left to myself. Why is that? Because I was, the Bible says, I'm dead in the trespasses of my sin, Ephesians 2, verse 1. But then Paul gives us these beautiful words. He says, but God, right? But God, verse 4. But God, Ephesians 2, 4, not 1 Peter. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love by which he's loved us, right? What did he do? He chose us. He chose us. And in his time, in his time, not because you grew up in a Christian family, not because you read a tract, not because you went to church and heard good music and a good sermon, not because you walked an aisle, not because you prayed a prayer, not because you signed a card and prayed along with someone to receive your faith. It's in God's time that he calls you to himself by the gospel. And so what Trenton Church has God done for you? He's elected you to, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Here's the second thing that Peter says. He says, we are elect in the sanctification of the spirit. This is the evidence and the seal of our election. How do we know God chose us? Because you see in your life, God is trending you toward holiness. He's changing you like, like ever be it so slow. Like, like I wish God would sanctify me a lot quicker. But the evidence that God is, has chosen me is that there's a process of sanctification, of holiness going on in me. And so the question that I would ask those of you listening today is, like, like how is it that you came to faith? Like, like, how does that even happen? Again, we would look back to our lives and we would come up with all these mechanics. I did this and I did this and I did those kind of things. And, and that might be well and good. But, but here's, the, here's the technical answer. Your sanctification happens. Your salvation happens when God, by his sovereignty, through the personal work of Jesus, by the Holy Spirit of God, breathes life into your dead souls. 
That's, what, that's how you become a, a believer in God. He breathes life into you. He, breathes, he brings life to where there was death. There's a beautiful picture of that in Ezekiel, um, Ezekiel 30, 37, verse 1 through 14. Uh, the prophet, I don't know if he's dreaming or if this is reality, but the, the Spirit of God himself brings him to the valley of dry bones. And uh, the Spirit, Ezekiel there, and uh, Ezekiel sees the scene of valley with just nothing but like ugly, nasty bones all over the place. No flesh, just bones. And the spirit looks over to Ezekiel. Ezekiel looks at the spirit and the spirit says, uh, Ezekiel, can these bones live? And Ezekiel does what I would have done. Like, 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 like I don't know the answer. And so I'm just going to reflect it on you. It's like, Lord, you know. And that's what he does. So he says, Lord, you know. And then the spirit tells Ezekiel to prophesy over these bones. And Ezekiel says words that in uh, in the provision of God, flesh starts to come back on these bones, and, and all of a sudden, they're full fleshly beings in this valley, but they're still dead. And so the Spirit tells Ezekiel to do one more thing. He says, breathe the breath of God into these, these dry bones. And what happens? Not just flesh and sinew and like muscles and all that stuff form, but these dead people like get up and live. And of course, that's a picture of God resurrecting the exilic Israel, calling him back to himself. And, and that's a picture of what God does to us, like bringing dead souls to life by bringing into us. And that's the highlight of the spirit. Of course, the, the highlight is, is the work of the spirit. The spirit of Jesus comes to us as we hear the gospel. He generates within us saving faith, uniting us to Jesus, both in life and in death. And of course, that's the picture of baptism. And in that moment, that special moment, the, the dominion of sin is broken off of us. And we begin this slow, steady, painful, most times unnoticed work of interchange and transformation that enables us to be less like our sinful selves and more like the glorious Jesus. The Spirit is who enables us to put death to life. By the Spirit, we live in obedience to Jesus. In the power of the Spirit, we love the things that God loves and hate the things that God, that God hates. And even if it's only by fits and starts, isn't it by fits and starts? It's like we wake up in the morning and it feels like I take two steps forward and one step back. Some mornings it feels like I take two, three, like three steps back and like half a step forward. But therein is the progressive nature of our faith, peaks and valleys. Up and down, hills and I mean, it's, it's, this is how it is, and yet we make progress not by not by the work that we're doing. We make progress by the mighty work of God until we're conformed to the likeness of Jesus. And the, and the scriptures tell us by the Spirit's work, we look forward to the day when we'll come to the threshold of death and enter into a nearer presence of Jesus, our Redeemer. So, what has God done, Transit Church? He has elected you in the sanctification of the Spirit according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Thirdly, this is the last thing. You are elect for obedience to Jesus Christ and the sprinkling with his blood. Uh, there's some technical here, technical stuff here I want to point out. In the Greek, this reads a little bit differently. In the Greek, it reads, for obedience and sprinkling with the blood of Jesus Christ. Uh, kind of a, a, a nuance, but I think this is an important thought. Uh, I don't know who the translator is, and I'm not saying that I know more Greek than the translator of the ESV. I love the ESV translation. But if we read it as it's translated, it can almost sound as if uh, there's our obedience to Jesus and he sprinkles a little blood on it. And that's not really what the, what's being conveyed here. 
The ESV, uh, the, it's, it's both obedience and the sprinkled blood here that actually belong to Jesus. There's a story in Exodus 24. We're not going to turn there. You should go read it because it shows us this, this beautiful picture of, of the, the, uh, the, the mosaic sanctuary being dedicated. God commemorates that with them, Moses and, and his elders. And God eventually calls Moses up to Mount Sinai with the elders, Abihu, uh, Aaron, and some of the other elders. Before they go up to Mount Sinai and worship in the presence of God, Aaron ha- uh, Moses has the, the wherewithal to provide a sacrifice to God. And so he gathers up uh, all the things that they would sacrifice God with. More importantly, the, the sacrificial animals, these, the, these unblemished animals. And uh, they, uh, they sacrifice them. They take the blood, this like... Bowls of blood. They pour some on, on the altar, which ends up being uh, the Bible says a sweet aroma that goes up to God as an incense. But then, with the with the rest of the blood, they sprinkle it on themselves and they sprinkle it on the people, atoning for their sin. And so, what's being referenced here, I think, in Peter's mind, is this beautiful picture of God by by the blood of animals, uh, atoning for sin. Except Peter is taking it one step further. He, he's saying this is talking about the life of Christ. Like, it, like it's, it's Jesus' obedience. It's, it's his record of spotless righteousness that Jesus gives himself on the cross. And by that, in his person, through his work, he atones for our, for our sin. And of course, that's good news for us, Transit Church, isn't it? It's good news. Jesus has made a way for you and me and every single sinner on the planet no matter how guilty we are, no matter how deep and dark the stain of our sin is, because of what Jesus does, we can be clean. Our clothes, like, like spotty white, right? Because of the righteousness of Christ, not because of anything that we've done. Your guilt atoned for, your sin taken away by the precious blood of Jesus. And so what has God done? This is a beautiful picture that Peter's painting. He's elected us according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience and sprinkling by Jesus' blood. Amen to that. Now, here's what I want you to do, because this is really what's happening in real time 2,000 years ago when Peter's writing this letter to this dispersed group of churches. Think about how they would have received all of these words from Peter, that, that they are elect exiles of the dispersion. And, and, and those sound like good words. God has chosen me. Although I'm exiled and I'm dispersed as a people, I got this really good feeling that God has chosen me and I'm, I'm, as, uh, I'm, as, a, I'm as in the family of God as I need to be. But then here's the reality. I'm a sojourner. I'm a pilgrim. I'm a weirdo. I'm a fringe person. I'm spoken ill of. I'm marginalized. I'm suffering for righteousness sake. And Peter is saying to them all, here's the truth. To be a Christian is going to cost you. Like, you can't, like, skate through the Christian life and, 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 and slide from one side to the other as, as you want to. It's going to cost you. It's going to cost you socially. There are people who might be your friend today when you tell them that you're a Christian following Jesus that might not be your friend after you tell them that. There's a, that's, a, that's a cost economically. I don't know what that cost economically might be for you. Maybe it's you get a job or don't get a job. Maybe it's you don't get a promotion. Maybe it's that you're thought differently of and you're working because you speak out for um, things of faith that affects you economically. But Peter is saying there's going to be a cost for following Jesus. And so I'm warning you here, but even as I warn you, I don't want you to back up. 
But I also don't want you to compromise. I don't want you to give up. I don't want you to, to circle the wagons in a Christian subculture of your own. I don't want you to compromise and blend in like a chameleon in the world. Instead, I'm calling you to step forward. Step forward and do what? I like what 1 Peter 2.9 says. He says, I want you to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. In another verse, he says, I want you to, 1 Peter 3.15, be ready to give a reason to anyone who asks you for the hope that you have and do it with gentleness and respect. It might not get you anywhere with them, but you will have stood up for Jesus. And that's more important. There's this true story of, uh, of, of how in the 1920s and 30s, the, the Golden Gate Bridge was being built and the construction workers, I mean, these are, these are some heroic people in, in that era of, of life as they're building these monstrosities of structures that, of course, we still use in our day today. In this particular case, construction workers didn't use any kind of safety equipment. I mean, what were they thinking? They weren't using any safety equipment. Tragically, about 23 people fell to their death. Fortunately, by the end of this project, I think the bridge opened in 1933, uh, they were using a net, okay? Probably like you, uh, for those of you who are old enough to have gone to uh, the Barnum and Bailey Circus, like a net that you would see underneath a trapeze artist so that they could tip, you know, tumble and, and fall and land in the net. That's the kind of net they were probably using. And so over time, as they're building this bridge, actually about 10 more people fell, except they didn't fall to their death. In fact, what they found was um, remarkably, 25% more, more of the work got done in a quicker fashion uh, after the net was installed. Why do you think that was? They felt safe, right? They, they had a net there. There's, a, there's a, a, a modicum of safety there. They knew that even if something happens, even if I should fall, even if I should fail, I've got a backdrop. There's some, if something is going to catch me. I'll close with this. Peter, Peter encourages us to do some daunting things in regards to being overt about our faith. He's conveying to us, to his readers, uh, living for Jesus is going to cost us. It comes at great risk. And, and to do that, here's what Peter says. He says, don't forget that you're, you're foreloved. Like, like, how do I navigate the difficulty, the trial of life, being a Christian, fitting into the culture, even if I'm a minority, how, how do I do that, still being faithful to the God that I know, love, and, and want to serve? And Peter says, it's going to cost you, but, but don't forget that you're foreloved. Don't forget that God has chosen you. You're elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. He loved you from eternity. One theologian says, the best proof that God will never stop loving you is he, he never began loving you. He, he's, he's always loved you. He has an everlasting love for you. And you are elected in sanctification by the Spirit. In other words, God the Holy Spirit will never give up on you till the work that Jesus has started in you is finished. And so how do, how, how do we actually make it when, when life gets tough? How do we put one step, one foot in front of the other? How do we get our bodies to go along with us when we're when life is a, is a steep uphill climb and it gets tough and, and like it's, it's actually hard, like physically hard. 
when the pressure of the world to compromise is bearing hard on us, how do we press on in those circumstances? And, and I think Peter's going to say these great words. He says, the assurance of our faith is that God finishes what he starts. If we would go to one of Paul's letters, that Paul says that in Philippians 1.6, right? He who began a good work will be faithful to, to complete it. There's not a single Christian brought out of life into death, brought from darkness into light, who begins the Christian life that God doesn't give you the wherewithal to finish it. And that's our assurance. And then lastly, we are elect obedience. We are elect for obedience and the sprinkled blood of Jesus Christ. And I love this phrase because that's the great anchor of our assurance and the confidence that we have before God in a watching world. That, 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 that it's not my work that I get to depend on, that I have to depend on, that I should depend on. It's Jesus' work. And on the cross, what did he do? He, 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 he uh, they um, stretched out his arms. He gave up his, his, his own breath willingly, and he said these words, it is finished. That your debt is paid. God is satisfied in me, and if you're in me, he's satisfied with you. That you stand now forever and righteous. That nothing can change your right standing before God. You are his, and you've been brought with a price. So, Trinity Church, I mean, these are encouraging words to me. They're words that we need to hear right now, and uh, I think we're going to enjoy this book. So with that, uh, let's dive in. Read it, read it ahead of time if you get a chance. Uh, we'll be in uh, verses six through uh, four through nine next week. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful. Thank you for your word that it doesn't return void, that it gives us exactly what we need in the moment. And in this moment, Lord God, um, I, I pray that you give us just a, a sense of uncanny desire uh, to stand up for you, that we're going to do that imperfectly. There, there are going to be opportunities for us to speak out for you and uh, act for you. Uh, demonstrably in the world that we live in, and 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 Lord, in Peter's words, we should expect to uh, to be to, to to get pushback from that. So I pray, God, that we would uh, that we would not falter, even though we might fail. God, that we wouldn't cower, that we wouldn't uh, relegate ourselves to uh, in our houses, in our basement, with food and water, uh, scared of what the the society is going to do or even say to us. But God, that we would take uh, Peter's words uh, as, as truth from you. And then we would stand firm, knowing that even if we fail, Lord God, you're going to establish us and, and, and confirm us and strengthen us so that we'll be useful for you for our lifetime. I pray that in Christ's name. Amen.